God is setting me. <laughs> Psalm 22 is about a person who is crying out to God to save him from the taunts and torments of his enemies. And then, in the last ten verses, he turns to praise, thanking God for rescuing him. More than any other, Psalm 22 serves as a link between the Old Testament and the story of God's passion. It is referred to at least five times in the crucifixion account, and we can only assume the New Testament writers drew from it because of its profound expressions of suffering and faith. The psalm opens with that famous cry of dereliction we are all familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? An accusation here that God is far away from the person crying out for help. Enemies threaten him. Powerful human enemies interpreted here as animals that prey on him. The dogs encircle him as he cries out and shouts to God for deliverance. Evil men have pierced his hands and feet and gloat over him. They divide his garments among themselves and cast lots for them. This, of course, being a common practice in the ancient Near East. The psalm is traditionally associated with a royal figure, usually that of King David. Sometimes Queen Esther, King Hezekiah, and here, this morning, due to the symbolic imagery to Jesus and his passion. As we have journeyed through Lent, we have been attempting to hear the voices of Easter. This morning, while looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, we take a sounding of the voice of Jesus. Here Luke records the trial of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate, Jesus' meeting with Herod Antipas, and his crucifixion, death and burial. Luke wants us to see that even while Jesus was being falsely accused and suffering on the cross, he exemplified self-restraint, compassion, love and forgiveness. So when Jesus speaks, what do we hear? What is Jesus telling us when he doesn't speak? What do we understand through his actions? Luke's account is quite unique in that he reports three incidents not written about anywhere else in the Gospels. The words of Jesus to the daughters of Jerusalem Jesus' conversation with the thief on the cross, and when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Normally, the victims of crucifixion, I say normally, nothing seems normal about it, of course, but normally the victims of crucifixion were forced to carry the wood that they would be hung on. The weight of the entire cross was typically 300 pounds. The victim carried the crossbar, which weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. Their wrists were generally tied to the crossbar. In actual fact, nails to pierce 
the victim, were not often used. The upright beams of the cross were usually permanently fixed in a visible place outside the city walls, beside a major road, as a warning to the passers-by. And maybe it's ironical to wonder how many times Jesus passed the cross that he was going to hang on. Jesus was weak after the loss of so much blood. But before we get to his loss of blood and the dreadful events with the Roman soldiers, we need to think about his evening, his night on the Mount of Olives. The stress that he went through. We're told that he perspired blood, sweat blood, which is a medical possibility. Such was his state of stress, knowing what was going to happen to him. Then there was his arrest and the long night in prison. And then a brutal flogging by the Romans after that. And of course, just to make it even more brutal, they would use three leather thongs and on the end of each thong would be a steel, well, a metal ball. You can imagine what his back would look like. We're told it was one less than 40 strokes, so 39 strokes. And very often we're told it cut down to the bone. So his weakness was profound. And when they led him away, soldiers commandeered Simon of Cyrene to carry the crossbar. It's interesting, isn't it, that Simon of Cyrene gets a mention here. Why? Other than to carry the crossbar. I think maybe it's to make the point that here is one innocent bystander who's had nothing to do with the jeering crowd. He's had nothing to do with the accusations of Jesus. He has come in from the diaspora, probably 800 miles away. He is a pilgrim and he's come in for Passover. And this one action by the Roman soldiers means that he can't attend Passover after having come all that way because of course he will be unclean. A large number of people followed him, followed Jesus, including a group of women who mourned and wailed at him. When Jesus turns to them, and here they're called the daughters of Jerusalem, he tells them not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves. The tragedy is not what Jesus is experiencing, but what these women and their children were going to undergo in the future. Jesus well knows the fate of Jerusalem and was referring to the sack of the city by the Romans. They will bring great suffering, especially to all the women and children. Then there is Jesus' rather puzzling reference to the two trees immediately after this, the green tree and the dry tree. A clue lies maybe in the word men, when Jesus says, for if men do these things, if the men refers to the Romans, Romans, Jesus is saying in context, if the Roman army will deal with me in this way now, what will they do to you then? The difference between now and then 
is the difference between greenness and dryness. It is, of course, the difference between life and death. A green tree is alive. Jerusalem's greenness is the presence of her God. Her dryness is the absence of God. Jesus is therefore saying, if when the Messiah, the very Son of God, is in your fair city and the Roman army deals with me as such, what do you think your destiny will be in my absence? When Jerusalem is abandoned by God and like dry sticks, only fit for the fire of destruction. The Israelites who lived in Israel at the time of Jesus, and especially those who lived in Jerusalem, had a special privilege in seeing and hearing the Messiah. But they also carried a far greater guilt for rejecting him. The sacking of Jerusalem was to be God's judgment on that generation and on that city for the rejection of Jesus as God's Messiah. He was rejected by the religious elders. He was rejected by Pilate. In fact, Pilate couldn't wait to get rid of him. He passed the buck to Herod Antipas. And he was rejected by Herod in a far more vile way, really, because Herod had been wanting to meet Jesus for a very long time. This was his opportunity. He wanted to meet Jesus and be entertained. He wanted to be amused. He wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. He wanted him to do magic. How demeaning. Jesus got his measure because he said nothing. He stood before him silently. Then later when they crucified him with two criminals, one on either side, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The love of Jesus never fails. On the cross, he prayed even for his executioners, asking God the Father to not hold this sin against them. Jesus, we know, of course, probably prayed for his enemies all through his ministry. But this prayer was heard and noted because it was not in private. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. With this prayer, Jesus fulfilled his own command to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good for those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We are called to pray for our enemies. And I would suggest that when we find this difficult, we go back to this scene at the cross. Could our prayers for our enemies be any more difficult? For they do not know what they do. Here Jesus recognizes the blindness of his enemies. At first, both the criminals mock Jesus, but one of the thieves eventually came to see things differently. So differently, he actually puts his trust in Jesus 
showing his fear of God and recognising Jesus' innocence. He believed Jesus was who Jesus said he was and asks to be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Jesus answers him saying, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise assuring him of a life, an afterlife, and in paradise, not in torment. Significantly, the thief who trusted in Jesus at the last moment goes to the same heaven anyone else does. This might seem a little unfair, but looking at the larger picture, it gives glory to the grace of God not to any human right in salvation. A mercy and grace open to us all via God, but only via God. This assurance to the thief was really important to Jesus. And it was really important to him because it cost him. It cost him dearly. Speech can only occur as we exhale our breath. So speaking these words must have been difficult and painful while hanging on the cross. If you can imagine anyone hanging on a cross, you know that as they hang and they bend over, the longer they've been there, the more their lungs are distorted and the less breath they have. And it was far beyond the thief's expectation or he probably had some distant time in mind. He recognised Jesus and he asked to be remembered. But Jesus tells him, today you will be with me and promised him paradise. Luke then tells us that at the point of death, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. In John 19, we are told Jesus said, it is finished. One word in Greek, tetalestra, meaning paid in full. The cry of a winner because Jesus had paid in full the debt of sin we owed and had finished the eternal purpose of the cross. And Jesus had completed the thing he most dreaded about the cross, his spiritual suffering, the act of being judged for sin in our place. This was the cup, the cup of God's righteous wrath that he had trembled at drinking. But when he was on the Mount of Olives, Jesus had prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, Jesus was judged and drank the cup of the Father's wrath. He did it so we would not have to take up this cup ourselves. Father, into your hands. A person being crucified could barely gasp for breath. The fact that he could raise his voice surely indicates that Jesus was still in control of his destiny. 
His work on the cross was accomplished. With prayer, Jesus yielded his living spirit to God the Father as he yielded his body to death on the cross. Clearly, this shows that Jesus gave up his life when he wanted to and how he wanted to. No one took his life from him. He gave it up when his work was finished. Jesus is not a victim that we should pity. Nor can we, because he is the conqueror. He conquered death, he drank from the cup, and by doing so, he brought us life. He breathed his last. Once the work of the cross was accomplished, Jesus felt no further need to endure the suffering. It's an echo of that verse in Genesis, isn't it? Where it is said, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Into Adam, the one God breathed the breath of life. Into the other, Jesus, he breathed out the breath of life. It was precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. It can be rightly said that love kept Jesus on the cross, not nails. Amen. Give the magic machine to Tony.